0: Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, a look at the three big looming battles for freedom. Media freedom, religious freedom, and yes, COVID freedom. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to another edition of The Andrew Lawton Show. I don't know why I said good afternoon. You could be listening to this at absolutely any point in the day or night, and that is fine with me. In fact, I hope you listen to it whenever it is you want. Thank you very much, regardless of what time it is, wherever you are for tuning in. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show, and we have a lot to get through today, so I will just get right into it here. We're going to be talking about all sorts of freedom and all sorts of fighting on the front lines of freedom. We're talking about press freedom, we're talking about mask freedom, we're talking about lockdown freedom, and we are talking about religious freedom. Going to be speaking later on in the show with Pastor Henry Hildebrand, who's become very well known, not just as a pastor in the last few months, but also as a very outspoken voice on the matters of lockdown especially in his part of the country not far from me in Elmer Ontario also later on I want to speak a little bit about the Global Conference for Media Freedom Which took place earlier this week in Canada, and as you might suspect from my coverage of last year's Global Conference for Media Freedom, had a lot more of the window dressing than the freedom. But we'll talk about that very shortly. I want to begin by speaking about COVID freedom and a lot of the different fights we're seeing around this, not just in Canada but abroad, and and all part of the same battle. But I first want to point out the shifting goalposts, moving yet again. And I've talked about this phenomenon a number of times now where at first it was two weeks to flatten the curve and then it was hang on we just got to get hospital capacity down and then it became where the line kept changing as to what the government would consider success and then it was okay well we got to get a vaccine And that's been the main goal, the main target. No, no, no. We just have to hold things out until we get a vaccine, until we get a vaccine. And then in the last couple of weeks, we've actually had some very good news on the vaccine front. We had two major announcements in this area. There was Pfizer, which announced it had a 95% effective COVID-19 vaccine, and then another company, Moderna, which very similarly said it has a vaccine with a 94.5% success rate. And the Ontario government and other areas of Canada have already talked about getting these things. Ontario just notably said it is uh, set to receive 2.4 million doses of the vaccine. Now, obviously, that's not enough for the population, but this is going to be already a very aggressive process for governments to shore up their vaccine supply so again if all of this was just a matter of waiting until we had the vaccine in place and then we don't need to do masks or social distancing we can go back to the old way of life well take a look at this section of an interview with the ceo of moderna
1: it's not a silver bullet what we need is we need surveillance to be stronger. Uh, We need uh, public health measures because you have no other way at the beginning. This is your best weapon and you need to use it well. And I think when you look around the world, you have some countries that have done an excellent job, including, of course, China, controlling the virus. And you have some countries where it's totally out of control. And when you still go today, you know, in some places and you see people, you know, going to crowded places with no mask or eating inside restaurants with no mask, I don't understand it, it makes no sense to me. He's like, you're gonna get infected, the only question is when?
0: So the CEO of the company whose vaccine has been heralded as this transcendent arrival is saying that, well, it's not a silver bullet and we're going to need more surveillance. And he talks about even continued mask usage. And uh, this is something that people should be very concerned about. There are two things happening here. The first, I think, is lowering expectations. So when a guy who's in charge of a company that has talked about having a 94.5% success rate is saying, ah, you know, we got to watch it. A vaccine's not a silver bullet. I'm wondering, okay, well, 94.5% seems like a a silver bullet to me. And then calling for more surveillance, which seems to be resigned to basically the reality that the life we're living now is going to continue even after we have a vaccine. And even after we have, assuming it's successful, vaccine-driven, herd immunity. So the lowering of expectations, the calling for more surveillance, the continued reliance on masks, these are are not aligning with what we had been told all along the way. And I I don't want to say I'm surprised by that. Every time I say something uh, like that, I always get people in the comment section going, oh, you know, you're just learning this now. No, but I I have to walk through this process because a lot of people are coming to this late. A lot of people, and I've, I've heard this from many people over the last several months that really tried to give the government and the public health advisors and the lawmakers the benefit of the doubt for quite a while. And they, they've they reached a point, at varying points, but they've reached a point where they start to say, okay, I think we've been had. And when I say we've been had, I, I get battled by people in the comments on this, I'm not one of these people that says COVID-19 does not exist. I'm simply not. And I'm not going to change my mind on that. I know people that have had it. I know people that have had very serious uh, responses to it. And similarly, I know a couple of people who have had no response to it, who have had it and have absolutely been fine. But it is a real thing. But at the same point, I'm also very much against the draconian lockdown measures that were presented to us as a silver bullet, that were presented as being the thing that we could all do that was going to get us through this. And then that changed and then it became when there's a vaccine. And now even the vaccine itself is by the CEO of the vaccine company, apparently not enough. So I don't know where the next line is. I don't know what the next frontier is that they move it to. I, I know we've heard a number of people talk about how uh, we should just accept that wearing masks is good policy. We should continue to wear masks, and and that's just what we should do in perpetuity. Now, this week, uh, of course, there was a big Danish study that put a huge challenge on that. The Danmask 19 travel, uh, conducted in the spring with over 3,000 participants, uh, looked at this, and, and they actually had a randomized controlled trial, and... And they're saying uh, that it was you know, very rigorous scientific evidence behind this. And they had half of the people in the trial wear disposable surgical face masks, which they were told to change after eight hours of use. One month later, the trial participants were tested for the PCR antibody and lateral flow tests and compare those with trial participants in the control group who who didn't wear a mask. And they found that there was no statistically significant difference between those who wore masks and those who did not when it came to being infected by COVID-19. This is from an analysis in The Spectator 1.8% of those wearing a mask caught COVID compared to 2.1% of the control group. As a result, it seems that any effect masks have on preventing the spread of the disease in the community is small. Now, people would say, well, the control group was actually higher. I I don't think we can extrapolate from that that masks uh, make things worse or better. I think what we can basically do is say that those numbers are statistically insignificant to one another. And this is why, as I've talked about on the show. The government has changed its advice on masks repeatedly from don't wear them to maybe wear them to you should wear them to you have to wear them to now you have to make sure that you wear a specific type of mask. So clearly they're not seeing that the masking has worked. I mean, sure, we can go to full hazmat suits if we want, but at a certain point, you have to wonder if the cure is worse than the disease. And once we get to hazmat suits, I think we're at that point. So when you have this goalpost moving that keeps continuing, it means that you have to get governments basically pushing the same stuff they've been pushing for the last eight months in perpetuity. And this is, I fear, what the Moderna CEO, uh, Stefan Bensell was talking about when he said more surveillance. And if you want an example of surveillance, just take a look at South Australia police. Now, this is a tweet from a woman named Andrea who tags the South Australia Police Twitter account, and she says, hey, SA Police News, for the sake of my stupid husband, who's doing a Karen from Brighton Moe, and I think she's calling her husband a Karen, can you please broadcast very specific information about walking the dog, hashtag lockdown. And of course, being the good frontline police service that the South Australia police are, the account responds, hi, Andrea, you cannot leave the house to walk the dog or to exercise. And the woman who now has been told that her husband has to be a shut-in with her responds, thanks for replying. It's what I've been trying to tell him. Good work, stay safe too. So there is a lot to unpack here. I don't know who I hate more in this. There's this Twitter thread or uh, sorry, Reddit uh, thing called, Am I the asshole? Where people tell stories and they get the community to weigh in as to whether they are the asshole or the other person in the story is the asshole. And in this case, I believe both the woman and the South Australia police are, in fact, the assholes. She's bad for snitching out her husband, not only publicly on Twitter, but to the freaking police by saying that, oh, you know, I, I like imagine, I've had disagreements with my wife. I've never once, you know, called in the feds to mediate such a dispute, let alone ratted her out if I think she's wrong, which let's face it, I'm married, I'm the man, I'm the one that's always wrong. Uh, not to, I'm not saying she, she thinks it that way. I'm just saying that this is something that uh, we, we can just accept. And then we have the uh, alternative to this, which is the South Australia police, uh, who are openly saying very nonchalantly, no, 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 you can't do anything. You can't leave the house. You can't walk the dog. You can't exercise. So I think both of these are terrible. Now, South Australia police uh, res- uh, deleted its response. So they've uh, walked back from this. Uh, the woman then thanking, I think that was the icing on the cake, thanking them by saying, you know, that's what I... I've been trying to tell them. So, again, literally enlisting the arm of the state to win a dispute with her husband for the purported crime of going out for a walk. That was the issue. That was what he wanted to do. He wanted to walk the dog, he wanted to exercise. And in South Australia, they said that was not allowed. Now, let me talk about South Australia, though, because Australia has become one of the most Orwellian in how it's enforced its lockdown measures. And they've actually rolled back a little bit about this even in the last day. The reason is because the government learned that one person lied to contact tracers. One person lied to contact tracers and that was all it took because someone had apparently said that they just picked it up uh, by picking up a a shift at a pizza shop and then they actually learned that the person had worked multiple shifts at the pizza shop and apparently this was enough to trigger a complete reversal in government policy because they based an entire lockdown off of how many shifts uh, one guy worked at a pizza shop. Again, if you're wondering if I'm explaining this accurately, I am explaining it as clearly as as I understand it, which is not very because it seems so absurd. But this is where we are. So now the government has determined from the great pizza recantment of 2020 that, okay, maybe it can ease some of the lockdown measures. Maybe that was why the South Australia police deleted its tweet. Who knows? But this is the sort of stuff we're dealing with. And in Canada, we see in Manitoba, massive, massive fines, businesses that are being fined $5,000 for not uh, you know, taking a meter stick to make sure that everyone is standing six feet apart. Even if the business is telling people to, they have to be actively enforcing it. You have businesses that are being $5,000 fined if they don't uh, force people to wear masks, even though there are human rights considerations, even after you see people in your business that might not be wearing a mask. And take a listen to what Brian Pallister, the Premier of Manitoba said about this. And and just think if you're a business owner of the implications of what the government is telling you here. Remember that the right to shop is not as important as the right to life. And we're bringing these difficult measures forward today to protect people and to save lives. And you have that power in your hands. So don't rush out to the stores and take advantage uh, during the next few hours of the opportunity to to hurt yourself and others please don't do that and don't gather and protest without a mask on and endanger yourself and others do not do these things because if you do you will be ticketed and you will be fined but more importantly you will be placing yourself and others at risk so i implore you do the right thing get on the team Manitoba's counting on you, your friends, your neighbors, your loved ones are counting on you too. You know, I, the the worst thing about that is not that he's saying you don't have a right to sell things if you're a business owner. It's that he's speaking in nonstop platitudes. I mean, Brian Palliser, whenever he speaks, it sounds like he's doing some half baked, you know, slam poetry session. But regardless, he says you got to get on the team and, and then you have to, uh, you know, just get on and, or get out of the way. And you know what? You'll always miss 100% of the shots you don't take and something like that. But the right to shop is not as important as the right to life. Now, what what Manitoba has done is they've actually shut down all non-essential items not just non-essential businesses but non-essential items so what some people have done is uh, to stay in business they say you know we're going to start selling food items to justify we can be an essential business and I don't blame them because as I have pointed out any business is essential if you rely on it to live if you rely on it to feed your family that business is essential But what Brian Pallister has done here is said you can't sell non-essential items. So if you're a grocery store and you've got a little section of uh, products that you sell that aren't essential, maybe you sell, I don't know, a snowman kit or something. Oh, no, you got to barricade off that section. You can't do it. If you are a sporting goods store, you can't open. If you are a store that has some essential products and non-essential products, you can only sell half of them. So it's like you've got to put everything behind the walls like you're selling cigarettes or something because every non-essential product is now a taboo and the problem with this is that it's government determining what essential is and what essential isn't and I don't trust government to make that distinction and more importantly it is completely theatrical because as we know case transmission is not coming from retail it's not coming from stores it's not coming from grocery or sporting goods or malls case transmission is coming the vast majority of it from social contact or close contact among employees of a store but if you're an employee of a store and you're yucking it up in the lunchroom with people and you're in close contact whether you're selling essential or non-essential things has no bearing on the virus it's just like california putting in this 10 p.m curfew as though the virus only comes out at night because you know up until 10 p.m you're fine but once 10 p.m hits you know the virus is just peeking around the corner So you have all of these policies from lawmakers that are based on the illusion of controlling this, but in actuality, the virus isn't what's being controlled. The people are. And when the people are being controlled and not in pursuit of any tangible public health success, I can assure you the question that anyone should be asking is why? is why and that's where we go back to again the shifting goalposts of this narrative and look at the 14-day quarantine just for a moment so this is when you enter canada 14 days that you have to go into quarantine and there are a couple of exceptions to it for people that are commuting But ultimately, most people who are coming in have to do this unless they are a part of these exceptions that have been carved out. And a notable example of this is truck drivers. There was a CBC story earlier that said, you know, over 5 million people have come into Canada and not had to quarantine. And there was a lot of outrage to that, but you look into it and see that, basically half of them are truck drivers. And you don't wanna know what's gonna happen to your grocery store shelves if you force truck drivers to do a 14-day quarantine whenever they cross the border into Canada. And again, the whole point is transmission is not coming from truck drivers that uh, come across alone, maybe stop to get some food, sleep in their car, in their trucks a lot of the time. They are not the problem here, but they are in fact necessary for our supply chains. But the 14 day quarantine is not necessary with testing. And and there's a pilot project in Alberta going on to this effect. And there's now a study that has come out from McMaster Health Labs and Air Canada that has looked at this. And they say that 70% of COVID-19 cases can be detected when someone lands at the airport and gets a test. And they say their remaining cases can be detected a week later. So they did a a massive study, they've been running it for several months now, and they've released the interim findings, and they find that the 14-day quarantine, which is part of what's devastating the travel industry right now, no one's traveling because they can't afford to take a week off for vacation and then two weeks off for uh, quarantine, they're finding that they could actually catch all of these cases that would happen that people are picking up without someone having to go into lockdown for two weeks. And is the government going to respond? We don't know. It seemed like it was like pulling teeth to get them to do this small Calgary project. Whether they would expand it to Toronto, I don't know. But the results of this study show again, this gap between the science and the policy. And when the whole thing were promised back to January is a science-based approach to this, I don't think they've lived up to that. We've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. So speaking of people trying to get away from the theatrics of lockdown, I have to point out these two gents from Australia that I feel deserve somewhat of a medal. I mentioned in the first segment the South Australia approach to COVID-19. One exception if you want to have a gathering is you're allowed to have people for an outdoor wedding. You can't have an outdoor party, but you can have an outdoor wedding. So two young mates, both male and both straight, they weren't in love, they aren't a couple in any way, uh, decided they would have a wedding so that they could have 150 of their friends over to celebrate. When in fact, the 150 friends were coming over just to have a a wee bit of a party. And you can see the guys there with their certificate of commitment. I'm not sure who officiated over it, but it was a a silly teenage idea, according to the father of one of the boys. Uh, Not a legally binding wedding, but they decided they would do this. Uh, They have now pledged their commitment to each other. So there's no COVID. You can have 150 people outside. And it sounds like their friend had a blast until a mom showed up and uh, put put this, uh, put this to bed. Uh, But it was very beautiful. You can see the happy couple holding hands there. It's very good. I uh, give them the Andrew Lawton Show Lockdown Evasion Award, which isn't actually a real thing, but we'll uh, maybe make it one now because I thought this idea was pretty great. Uh, Let me just talk very briefly about this Global Conference for Media Freedom that took place. This is an event I covered last year in London that was brought back for a virtual conference this year. And if you want to get my reports from it, I filed a a couple of videos earlier in the week. I won't read. Hash those, except to say that the global conference for media freedom was not actually about media freedom. For starters, the first session was closed to the media. So uh, it was where lawmakers were getting together to talk about all the things they're going to do for media freedom in their countries. And by this point, still almost a week later, I haven't been able to figure out what was said in that meeting because it was closed off. You also had uh, this relentless focus on everywhere else in the world including Justin Trudeau, who spoke and didn't really talk about press freedom in Canada. He talked about the need to stand up for it globally, but not the things that are happening in his own country. And one of the most notable examples of this is the ongoing fight between Rebel True North and yours truly against the Leaders Debates Commission, a government agency that literally denied us the right to cover government-sanctioned election debates. We got our injunction in federal court, but the overall case is still ongoing. The government is still fighting us on this. So again, for a government that's co-hosting a media freedom conference to be actively fighting, I was thinking, great, does this mean they're going to drop their defense? But I checked with our lawyer and apparently, no, the case is still very much ongoing. Because the government wants to decide who a journalist is and who a journalist isn't. And that decision in and of itself is a violation of press freedom. And it's an important point because if you are to believe truly in press freedom, you have to understand that there are different types of press. There are different types of media. And that they can all be separate but equal. Or not even equal, but they can all be different but all still journalists. And this is something that the Trudeau government and the Trudeau apparatus, the liberals, have not quite accepted. I was banned from covering the liberal campaign in the last election because they said I was not a journalist. And I said, well, by whose standard? They said, well, you're, I mean, you're not accredited. I said, well, yes, I am. Here's my letter of accreditation from my editor. Here are all the other events I've covered. And the irony is it was the Canadian government that accredited me to cover the Global Conference for Media Freedom. Now, did they do that because they believe I'm a journalist or because it was an online event? So the stakes were pretty low to just say, okay, yeah, we'll we'll flip him the Zoom link or whatever it was. But this is important. And I actually asked a Francois-Philippe Champagne, the foreign affairs minister, about this. I was, to his credit, to the government's credit, permitted to attend and to ask a question at a press conference of his at the end of the Media Freedom Conference. And I said, we have varying degrees of media. We have traditional media, alternative media. With all of this, who is entitled to press freedom? Who is it that actually has these media freedom rights that you've been speaking about? And he gave what I thought was a great answer.
1: Well, that's a very good question. And thank you for it. I don't think it is for any government to define who is a journalist actually. Uh, I would leave it to journalists to define that themselves. I think our role is to make sure that, as we said today, we have seen a number, there's a number of trends against media freedom around the world. We heard from our colleagues in Belarus today who have been harassed, who have been facing violence, and and have been seeing more and more restrictions uh, on media freedom. One other aspect which is of concern to me, and I mentioned that before, it's the kind of emerging technologies Uh, which uh, uh, are are spreading misinformation and disinformation. So I would think that uh, we need more than ever uh, journalists uh, uh, around the world to speak up, to stand up, and to report uh, information accurately so that citizens around the world can be properly informed, and that's the bedrock of our democracy.
0: I I couldn't agree more. He says it's not for the government to decide who a journalist is. It is the responsibility of journalists to decide for themselves. So I say to the government officially on this day, November 20th, 2020, I, Andrew Lawton, am a journalist, and I expect to be invited to the next Trudeau press conference whenever it is, wherever it is. And I will submit when they ask for accreditation, that little clip of Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne. Thank you very much to the minister for that. And again, there's also proof here that I'm not as terrifying as the Trudeau comms team thinks I am, because this was one of the arguments I made last October. What do you think is going to happen? What do you think is going to happen if you let me in? I'm far more of an annoyance outside when I've been banned and I'm forced to just come up with something to say in the parking lot than if you let me cover the actual content. You might not agree with the content, but it will always be fair. And that's what I'm all about. So again, I go to the Global Conference for Media Freedom, cover it for what it is, ask a fair question, get a reasonable answer. That's journalism. That's the process at work. So thanks to those of you who tuned in to my conference coverage online and in the videos after. And I will just say Global Conference for Media Freedom is an event that I'm going to continue to cover because press freedom is so important. And I know we'll put in a fundraising plug at the end. But I will say if you can support our efforts to as an independent media outlet Continue to stand up for free speech and cover these stories in a way the mainstream media isn't. Please do. You can head on over to tnc.news slash donate, and it's very much appreciated. We'll be back in a moment with Pastor Henry Hildebrandt here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. We've talked on the show in the past about how Elmer, Ontario, the small town in southwestern Ontario, has become this hotbed in the fight for freedom where overzealous bureaucrats, public health officials, municipal officers are butting up against an increasingly large group of protesters that are uh, criticizing masks, criticizing lockdown, and the government uh, has had a, a very precarious relationship with respecting free speech in this regard. And a lot of it has come down to uh, one very notable example early in the lockdown, back in April, when a drive-in church service became the target of the Elmer police, who eventually backed off, and it actually led to the whole episode, the government specifically saying drive-in services are fine, but the church in question was the Church of God in Elmer, led by Pastor Henry Hildebrand, who's become very vocal on religious freedom and also resisting lockdown, and most. Most notably, this past week, Pastor Hildebrandt received a letter from Southwestern Public Health, which is the local public health unit, requesting that he shut down the church for 28 days on a voluntary basis. Now, as you might be able to expect, his answer has been no, but I still want to talk about this letter. Pastor Hildebrandt joins me on the line now. Pastor, good to talk to you again. Thanks for coming
2: on today. Andrew, good to have me again.
0: You've been talking for months now about these issues, and I know a lot of people are very grateful. I know you've had uh, quite a, an international following buildup around your, your commentary on this. Tell me what your feeling was when you got this letter from the Southwestern Public Health.
2: I was quite surprised. Um, it arrived in my email inbox on the 17th, and then I looked at the letter, and it said this is effective as of the 17th, which seemed rather strange that you get the letter and it's effective right away. Um, I assumed at that point, I assumed that every pastor in our area uh, received it. Of course, it was addressed to me, but I figured that everyone else would have gotten a similar letter, uh, only to find out later on to this point, all I can find out is I'm the only one that received it. So it, I, I was surprised that it, 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 seemed, it seemed rather strange.
0: I just want to read a a section of this letter to those tuning in. Southwestern Public Health is recommending that your church, along with others where we are seeing an increased risk in exposure to COVID-19, voluntarily cease in-person church services and all in-person gatherings for 28 days, beginning, as you note, November 17th. It says later on, the purpose of this closure is to prevent the gathering of your church members with people outside their own household to protect them from being exposed to COVID-19. This will help to prevent the further spread of COVID-19 within the broader community and help protect those who are the most vulnerable to severe illness. Has there ever been to your knowledge a case of COVID-19 within your church? Because when they say communities where there's a high risk, they're saying that your church is a high risk for COVID-19.
2: There has been none, none at all, Andrew.
0: So what is the justification that
2: you think they're using it's, it's, it's a really tough one. I just do not know because we have, um, so there's been five deaths uh, altogether in Elgin, Oxford, all year, five deaths. And of course, every death is tragic, but there's been five deaths. Uh, like we were just saying, there's no cases uh, of in Elmer or Malahide connected to our church. Uh, I just do not know what the justification is. I read the letter again and again. I do not know, and of course, there's no facts attached to the ladder. Um, the, the word pandemic is not in there in the ladder. I, I don't know what the, uh, what, what, what was the urge or what was, what's behind the ladder. I reached
0: out to the public health agency, and and they said that several churches, they didn't give a list, but they said several churches received this, and they said that attending church where there may be singing, talking, and long periods of sitting or standing in close proximity are higher risk situations for the spread of COVID-19. The issue that I have with this is that we have now had eight months to adapt practices to make things a bit safer, not just in church, but in grocery stores, in in all institutions, and, and it's. Seems like we've had a, a fair bit of success in that. So I don't understand when the provincial government's advice is that churches can open safely, why a local health agency is, is trying to get you to shut down for a month.
2: That's the thing, Andrew. Is there? There's been no, uh, no, nothing coming from the from the premier. There's no law in place right now to shut down churches at all. Um, we, as our church here, we are very, very careful when it comes to things. Not just now with uh, the uh, COVID-19, but whether it was whooping cough or whatever would, could have come up in the past, we have always been and are now very, very careful uh, so as not to prevent or not to, not to spread any, uh, anything. So um, it, I, I, I don't understand And Like I said, I have not heard of other churches. We did check. We have not yet found who else got it. And once we find them, we will know. But at this point, all I know is that I have the letter.
0: When I see a request like this, I see it as a, a violation of religious freedom. Telling a, shir- a church even voluntarily to shut down is something that you would never see done, to my, to, in my view anyway, to other religious groups. Uh, you'd never see a business told, hey, I, I think you, you don't have to, but it would be nice if you closed down for a month. I've had people that have responded to me since I first wrote about this yesterday saying, well, it's just a request. It, it's just a, a question. There, there's no obligation. What's your response to that?
2: Andrew I the longer I uh, think about this this letter this stranger it se- seems to me what happened here because the wording the wording is okay so I'll, uh, first of all I'll say I would say the letter was respectfully written okay but look at the Andrew look at the content it's saying disclosure is to prevent church members so a pastor is asked if he would voluntarily do something to prevent the church members from gathering, it's, it's at its best, very, very strange and very wrong. It, it's just the, the, the whole approach is, is, is not appropriate. I, I, f- I find it very offensive.
0: And, and again, I've, I've made this point to people, if the government is telling you to do something, even if it's quote-unquote just a request, there, there is an inherent coercive effect to that. The state is telling you not to worship. The state is telling you your church should close its doors.
2: Right, exactly, and which is not the case here, not the case here. It's a local um, health unit uh, saying that based on what they feel or what they think, uh is and they're not referring to deaths they're not referring to an emergency because there is none uh, what what is i i called them yesterday left them a message they haven't returned my call yet i my my only question i have is what was behind this just just tell me what what's your burden what 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 are you referring to
0: yeah, and the one, and you you pointed this out when you spoke at, at your church on, I believe it was Thursday evening, they say that you can continue to have drive-in religious gatherings, and they quote, discourage the idling of engines, unquote. Now, uh, when I was attending my church uh, in, in drive-in form earlier this summer, it was not too, too bad. You could roll down the windows. You've got people that uh, in Elmer uh, have horse and buggy that have no heaters. You've got uh, people in cars in December, as the weather is getting a little bit cooler the idea of sitting in your car in december in southern ontario without idling an engine is not exactly a, a viable alternative to worshiping
2: andrew that's why i told them straight out as you heard me say on wednesday night uh absolutely have your engines idling because i don't want no little ones to be cold in there and and the mothers and and everyone else so um i just found it rather humorous that in the letter, in the, at the end of the letter, they're suggesting to me that we could have, continue having drive-in services. I have heard of drive-in services before, you know, Andrew. Uh, they did come up earlier this year, so I am familiar with drive-in services, uh, as you know. So I thought that's rather humorous that at the end of the letter, they have to uh, introduce me to drive-in services and tell me how to, uh, how to have them. We are, we are quite familiar with drive-in services. We have done them for the past eight months and I do not need a local health unit to tell me that that is allowed. I fought for it. We won the case. Uh, The premier changed the law in Ontario in our favor. So I am familiar with drive-in services.
0: I know you said you haven't actually spoken to the health unit since getting this letter, but I have to ask you, Pastor, where do you go from here? Because I know that with what you're saying about not being able to identify any other churches that have received this letter and with in general, I'd say, how you and your church have been treated by various you know levels of government going back to April now. Where do you go when you get something like this? What's your path forward?
2: So first of all, I would like to know is this intimidation? Is this an attempt to intimidate us? Uh, if it was, it failed. Uh, it doesn't intimidate us at all. Uh, we are going forward as we have until now. There has been no, no, uh, nothing issued for this area that churches need to close. Uh, so it, not nothing changes. And until they return my call and explain to me what the issue is here, uh, no, nothing changes. We're going on as we have.
0: And that was actually an interesting point that you you just reminded me of. The letter says that someone will follow up with you and you indicated that sure enough, you had received, I think it was a voicemail from someone from the health unit.
2: That's right. They had left a message at our church phone. So then I returned that call yesterday morning from my home phone and left them my number so that they could reach me, but I have not heard from them yet. Um, So until I hear from them, like I said, my main thing is I have no questions. There's nothing that needs to be explained because there is nothing that, that is going on right now. But what I want to know from them is please tell me what is the motive of this letter, just so there is no, uh, so, so we understand what it is.
0: And I guess I would ask you then what would it mean if they were to kind of provide you a list of all the other churches that received it? If they said, well, it wasn't just you, it was all of these places, would that change your uh, concerns with the letter?
2: So if they tell me that the others got it as well, that definitely changes, then it doesn't seem like a personal attack or a personal uh, uh, attempt to intimidate. That would definitely uh, uh, change that part of it.
0: Because I, I will say, and again, I don't have a list. The the health agency says that several churches got it. Now, for, from my perspective, that doesn't really change all that much, because I, I feel that we have to go with the evidence on this. And this is a point that you raised earlier. If there's a, a church that's causing problems, a church that's causing some sort of an outbreak, then deal with that. But my issue here is that we already have guidelines. There are already restrictions on how churches can operate that are meant to make sure they aren't places where COVID-19 is being transmitted, so I don't know why a shutdown is necessary.
2: Yes, uh, and f- from that perspective, nothing would change. Even if they said other churches had gotten the letter, uh, nothing would change that way because there is no, there's no outbreak, there's, there's nothing happening, and I don't appreciate that, that Elmer is put into that light uh, that it comes across as that, that what all is going on here when we're not aware of anything that's going on.
0: That's actually very important, Pastor, because there are a lot of people across the country that had never heard of Elmer before now. And I, I literally, I get emails from people in British Columbia and Alberta that are asking me about Elmer because they know it's not far from me in London. And, and this is how they're learning about the community, going back to when police were filming your drive-in services in, I think it was April, to uh, when we had the government going after the the anti-lockdown protests. And, and, and this is how your community is now being showcased to a lot of people.
2: And Andrew, that's the thing. If we go back eight months back to the spring, um, people people accuse me and they say, well, why are you putting Elmer in the spotlight? Let me remind everyone that it's not me doing it because we were doing our things in and in, in the driving service earlier this year, and the police came by and they said, thumbs up, all looks good. Then they rocked the boat, and now we're the same situation again. So we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, and I get this letter, uh, based on what? So then I have yeah. no respond letter and let everybody know because we have a lot a lot of followers not just here in Elmer there's thousands of people following us worldwide so they want to know what is going on so I have to post a letter I don't know why the letter was written Um, I guess they felt it was good enough just to write a letter instead of making a phone call and saying pastor we are singling you out or we're not just just tell me what you're doing so that we can go on from here but there seems to be very, very little effort put into communicating from any level of, of people out there, um, just taking it for granted that we will get an email and that I, as the pastor, would then proceed to uh, shut the church down and prevent the people from gathering. That's not the case.
0: So lest there be any doubt at all, the answer to the question of will you shut down is a resounding no.
2: It's a resounding a resounding no there's no way that a pastor would volunteer to say I will go ahead I was invited to do this I will go ahead and shut the church doors so that the members cannot meet that's that's that that would be very wrong.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much and God bless you Pastor Henry Hildebrandt of the Church of God. Thank you.
2: Thank you Andrew for having me again.
0: Well, Just insane. And he was very diplomatic, I will say, but not that I was expecting anything otherwise. But again, when a government agency, even if it's a, you know, a local health unit does something like this, it is inherently coercive. And I made the comparison to in a little back and forth with a friend yesterday that it's like police carding. My issue with police carding is that even if a police officer voluntarily asks you for information that you don't have to provide, it is inherently coercive because of their position, because of their Role. So when in the lead up to Christmas, the government is saying, Oh, we want you to shut down for 28 days, they're following it up with a phone call. I'm saying, Okay, this is when coming from the government, something that is very heavy-handed. We will follow this, and if you have any questions or comments on anything we covered in the show, my email address is andrew at AndrewLawton.ca. Look forward to hearing from you. We should do like a, a reader email section. I try to respond if there's one that I, I feel will be too long for me to type out a response to. I try to respond on the show, but I should do a, a section where I just kind of read a, a whole bunch of them if, uh, if people are interested. In any case, let me know what you think. We will talk to you next week. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all.